Welcome to Osborne Clark's Future of Financial Services podcast. This series is inspired by our annual Future of Financial Services Week, where we explore the challenges and solutions facing the sector. My name is Topeka Keane, and I'm the Head of Business Transactions Knowledge at Osborne Clark. In today's episode, we're discussing recent trends in financial services sector M&A. We are living in interesting times for both M&A activity and the FS sector, so I'm sure we'll have a lot to discuss. I'm joined today by three FS sector M&A experts, partners Louise Grasco and Tom Try, and Associate Director James Mackay. So let's start with the hot areas. The FS sector has been transformed by technology and M&A activity has been a crucial part of that transformation journey. Whether it's incumbents enhancing their capabilities through acquisition or startups finding their exit. What has been your experience of fintech M&A in recent years and where do you think the hot areas for M&A activity will be in the future, Tom? Thanks, Tobi. Yeah, so um, I, I guess recent years is sort of quite a charged phrase, um, given that it, it looks back through to, to COVID. Um, I think it is worth probably actually in the context of answering this question, um, looking at sort of pre-COVID, during COVID and, and where we might be looking towards now. I think sort of prior to COVID, disruption was really the watchword for the fintech industry and particular subspaces like payments um, meant that fintechs were able to take advantage of reliance on legacy infrastructure, legacy pricing models, to really introduce innovative solutions which did mix up the space. Um, so in the payment space, you had people like Stripe and PayPal who really were disrupting in wealth management businesses like Nutmeg. Um, we then, of course, tracked into COVID starting in 2020, and that in some ways accelerated that innovation because the core offering of fintechs in assisting people and businesses in moving money, investing money and tracking money came much more to the fore. And then, of course, that led... Uh, the back of that on rapid scaling to incumbents looking at their business models and realizing not only that there were competitors or challengers who were doing things that they couldn't do but that they were actually doing things that competitors or perhaps just other people in the space could do much better um so potentially looking at offloading or outsourcing businesses um but in terms of the the areas that i think are, are going to be of most interest and it's a slightly trite and unoriginal answer but i think it is going to come out come down to those who are um prime for being most disrupted by ai um and i think of two two areas i think in particular spring to mind there firstly in there is the wealth management space and we've seen a lot of consolidation amongst independent financial advisors who are the more traditional providers of services in this area um, but i think ai is going to not only revolutionize the way in which these services can be offered and, and how they can be done or the cost at which they can be done but what i think it's also going to do is crucially potentially remove one of those barriers that was most prevalent in conversations we were having about how far digitalization of wealth management could go. And I remember attending seminars pre-COVID where it was clear that the tech was up to spec and there were a lot of solutions that were really interesting in terms of revolutionizing how wealth management was actually done. But what was the challenge was getting people to buy into a world in which they were going to be receiving those services in a predominantly digital way. So getting getting them out of the mindset of going into an office and meeting someone, but actually having a really um, digital first um, experience. And I think what AI is going to do is going to make all of us in quite short order become much more familiar with 
AI platforms and interacting with AI platforms. I think, therefore, not only is AI going to potentially revolutionize how wealth management uh, businesses conduct their business, but I think it's also going to remove a lot of the friction they might have been experiencing to really pushing forward with delivering innovative platforms and innovative experiences. Um, and the other area I think where that AI is going to be hugely disruptive in is in the slightly more boring, but but arguably just as essential to the financial services industry area of KYC and authentication of identities, and we're already seeing that that AI has is is able to do um, is able to do incredible things in relation to creation of deep fakes, which present a huge issue for financial services um, participants, um, and it presents them I think a twofold issue. One is that it pre presents them with an issue for how they conduct their own business, how they interface with their clients and how they ensure that they are dealing with who they think they're dealing with. But I think also there is a current expectation in the market that if you as a recipient of financial services are the victim of fraud, either your bank or an insurer will step in and take the pain on that. And I think, therefore, if we're about to enter a world where it's much easier to perpetuate those frauds and it's much harder to spot because of AI, the banks and insurers who are often on the hook ultimately for the loss that's caused have a great deal more skin in the game in terms of ensuring that they're, they're not on the hook. And the best way for doing that is developing um, you know, counter deepfake software or, or AI driven solutions that can actually really provide assurance on the identity front. So apologies, that's that's a slightly slightly boring answer that I think it's it's all about AI, but it is, I think, the answer that I'm giving. Thanks. Thanks, Tom. Um so just turning to perhaps um more uh, recent times where we've seen quite a lot of turbulence in the FS sector um, with rising interest rates and some high profile bank rescues. James, how has this had an impact on M&A activity in the sector? Well, Topeka, as, as you'll be aware, interest rates have been at historically low levels for over a decade. Um, they have increased a lot in the last 12 to 18 months, and naturally that is having some impact. Um, some of these impacts are the same as in other industries. So, for example, debt to help fund an acquisition is now more expensive. So that's reducing the activity of some buyers and also having an impact on valuations. Um, then, of course, some businesses which are already debt funded have struggled with the increased interest burden, um, and that's driven increased levels of financial distress. So we're seeing an increased number of struggling businesses, which might effectively be forced then into some sort of transaction, um, whether that be fundraising or a sale or, or some form of distress transaction. Um, now, those aren't factors necessarily that are unique to financial services, but there are some more specific ones for financial services businesses. Um, one, one of the key differences for certain businesses within the financial services sector when compared to other industries is that many look after cash. Uh, so increased interest rates are allowing them to make money uh, on that basis. So banks, for example, the, the, the classic business model is to lend money out at a higher interest rate than is given on deposits. But the interest rate environment over the last few years has effectively prevented that. Um, that's now changed. So these companies who are either holding cash or providing credit are now in an, an environment where it's arguably easier to make money. So we've seen banks make much bigger profits. We've seen bank challenges become profitable. 
Um, it isn't just banks, though. Platforms, for example, are, are often now also benefiting from holding cash. Uh, and this all changes business models and drives transactional activity. Um, then there's also an indirect consequence for many businesses. So, for example, asset managers are, are in a more difficult environment right now because return on equities has not been that good over the last few years. Uh, and that's OK when interest rates are low or zero. But when you can get a higher return on your cash just by putting it in a bank, then that's when asset managers may struggle with reduced inflows of cash and potentially outflows. Um, so to summarise, it's it's been a dynamic environment and changes in interest rates have had quite a significant impact on business models. Sometimes this reduces activity, but sometimes it increases it. And overall, our experience is that transactional activity in the FS industry has actually remained pretty steady over the last few years. Thanks very much, James. Um, turning to another hot topic, ESG um, has been a really hot issue for the sector at the moment and there's been lots of regulatory action um, with the UK's proposed sustainability disclosure requirements and before that the EU's sustainable finance, dis finance disclosure requirements, um, SFDR. Are you seeing ESG issues coming into the M&A process, Louise? Yes, we are seeing those kinds of issues coming into the M&A processes that we're dealing with. Um, and you're right that ESG has really shot to prominence in recent years. And actually, it's one of a number of key themes our clients are talking about at the moment. Um, but, it, you know, it's not just in the financial services sector and not just in the M&A world, but across sectors and across service lines. So when it comes to ESG in the M&A process, I would say it comes up in a number of areas. So in the due diligence process, we'd expect buyers to have an increasing interest in the ESG issues in terms of a target's policies and initiatives, but also in terms of its compliance with relevant laws and regulations, some of which you've mentioned already. So um, regulation is increasing in the ESG space. So we're seeing things like growing regulatory scrutiny of greenwashing, increasing requirements for non-financial reporting on environmental and social matters in a company's accounts, enforcement proceedings relating to non-financial misconduct in regulated firms, and also the development of frameworks for reporting on diversity and inclusion in regulated firms. And that's to name just a few. This might be making unsupported claims about the positive impact of its investment products, for example, from an environmental perspective, without there being sufficient evidence to support those claims. So there is a lot for a buyer in the financial services sector to be looking at and thinking about from a due diligence perspective. And given the nature of these laws and regulations, we'd expect to see close alignment and liaison between lawyers involved in a transaction, but also with other advisors, such as accountants and other experts. We're also seeing ESG coming up as a consideration in transaction documents. So particularly in the warranties, in sale and purchase agreements and asset purchase agreements. So while environmental warranties have been pretty standard in SPAs for many years now, we're seeing an increase in the number of warranties included in SPAs which relate to the S and the G as well. And those warranties might be sim as simple as confirmations that the target's got adequate ESG policies in place and hasn't had any ESG related incidents, or in some cases, a buyer might want to have a much more targeted set of warranties. 
Um, but actually, the importance of ESG in an M&A transaction goes just uh, beyond just the legal. And it should be a strong focus from, for a buyer from a strategic perspective when it comes to integra integration as well. It's important that ESG compliance continues um, and meets expectation post-completion. And that could mean making sure a target implements policies where they might have been missing in the past. But equally, a buyer could see an acquisition as an opportunity to leverage best practice from a target company. But either way, um, ESG strategy and cultural considerations are important uh, from a strategic perspective because they can impact on the success of integrations and in turn the financial growth and continuing success of the combined business post-completion. Thanks very much. Um, I think that sort of segues quite nicely into the, you know, the transaction process itself. So the FS sector M&A comes with you know, a unique set of challenges due to its highly regulated nature. Um, what are your top tips for a smooth transaction process, Tom? Yeah, so um, as, as a corporate lawyer who's sort of solely focused on getting the transaction away, I would say be lucky enough to have really top quality financial services advisory lawyers on your side, um, which fortunately Louise, James and I can say is the case. But I, I think that's always been um, important. Um, but I think it's particularly so in the current market for a, for a couple of reasons. Um, namely that, that there's there's tending to be a bit more of a value gap to be bridged between buyers and sellers and also we're seeing more interest um in fintech businesses from p buyers what that means therefore is that i think there's a, a bit more of a focus than there, there used to be on regulatory horizon scanning um in particular because buyers are seeking much more comfort that the charging model of their targets is not something that's likely to be disrupted by regulation in, in the short term um that sort of leads into the fact that we're we're increasingly seeing when acting on the sell side that there's um, a perceived and I think it's a correct assessment, but a perceived greater value in doing some sort of vendor DD or health check exercise on a business before going out to market, because that will allow you to get your regulatory horizon scanning in first, as well as doing what it ever did, which is giving PE firms um, access to a vendor DD report that will encourage them to put their best foot forward um, by by mitigating some of their upfront DD costs. The second feature I think of the current market is that transactions are taking longer to conclude. Um, so advice to, to sellers would be to ensure that they're able to continue to do the day-to-day -day job for you know, three, four months rather than assuming a sort of sprint six-week process. The fact that the process can elongate to that period of time does mean that there there may be periodic updates on performance on a sort of quarterly basis that buyers might seek. So sellers really be, need to be prepared and able to deliver um, the the BAU consistently throughout the um, the the period of time in which they're they're trying to conclude the transaction. So effectively ensuring you're able to to weather an intense process for a, for a bit longer a period than it might have taken. A couple of years ago, um, that's my two cents worth. Louise, you may have additional better thoughts. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with you. I think, um, from my perspective, I don't think sellers can be prepared enough. You know, you can never be too prepared, really, in these situations. So, I would be thinking as a seller, you know, get your house in order do some pre-sale kind of vendor due diligence to make sure that 
everything is in place and also then you can resolve any issues ahead of buyers, lawyers looking at your documents um, and present your business in the best light, really. Yeah, appoint a deal team who can get focused on the sale transaction because, you know, as you say, Tom, these things are taking a lot longer um, and you can't take your eye off the business as usual kind of um, you know, work. So having a focused team who can, um, you know, really take on the deal and make sure that everything uh, gets done in good time is really key. So I'd say don't underestimate the time it will take to get a transaction to completion um, or perhaps the distraction from the day job. But most importantly, um, appoint your advisors in good time and make sure they know the sector um, and that they've got good experience. Thanks very much, everybody. So there's lots going on and lots to look forward to. Thanks to uh, Louise, Tom and James for joining us today. And thank you for listening to Osborne Clark's Future of Financial Services podcast. You can subscribe for future episodes wherever you usually get your podcasts.